0: are now listening to the Film Situation
1: Podcast. Andrew Fuchs, welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. Thanks. I'm honored that this is your first podcast. Yeah, should be fun. So I guess give us a little bit of, of an intro about yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure.
0: I grew up in the Bay Area, just north of San Francisco. Went through the public school system there.
1: Were you always into movies?
0: I got into movies through video games in a roundabout way. I was really into Call of Duty in middle school.
1: I feel like a lot of people were. And
0: there is a kind of a vibrant YouTube community of Call of Duty montages. And so I got really into editing these Call of Duty montages. And so I got into filmmaking through editing, primarily.
1: I did as well, actually. Editing was my first foray.
0: Yeah, and then eventually I got a camera one Christmas and then started filming like little bike videos, random little things, and I just grew from there throughout high school. Was mostly interested in kind of branded content, so we were, me and a buddy of mine, Sam, who was on the Puppet Movie, we would work on these kind of branded projects together. We'd reach out to companies and try to pitch them on video projects and do them for free, and that's what we did for a while
1: throughout high school. Nice. So. And would you go to the movies often growing up or anything like that?
0: Not that often, really. Yeah, it was not something that I did that much. Yeah,
1: basically. I guess for you it was different because YouTube was already ubiquitous when you were in middle school and stuff, which was different. Yeah. Like for my generation. Yeah, where, for you know sure. That was... Much later on, and then, yeah. So that's interesting because I feel like you you were part of the first generation of like kids watching YouTube as content. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's no shortage of content on YouTube. Like you almost there's infinite. It's infinite. (laughs) So then you went to NYU, and was the thought to pursue film when you enrolled?
0: So I went to Gallatin, which is the liberal arts school at NYU. It's like a Build-A-Bear workshop for your education. You can really do whatever. And my initial plan was I was going to go to Gallatin because it would give me access to the film school and to the business school and to liberal arts. So I'd have a liberal arts foundation, and then I'd be able to take marketing classes in Stern and some film classes at Tisch. I'd be able to combine something that way, but narrative film was not at the forefront of what I thought I was going to be doing at the beginning of my time at NYU, that kind of changed throughout. Initially it was much more advertising focused. And then over time that became less interesting and I started doing more narrative projects. And from then at that point, there was a shift that happened after my first short film. And I was like, okay, this is what I need to
1: do. Tell us a little bit about your first short film. What was that about?
0: The first, my first short film was based off of my first gay experience with a stranger, just random hookup. What was the name of this? It was called Hey Stranger. That film came out of a project that I was doing with a New York City artist named Chantal Martin. I was really into YouTube, and so there were YouTubers that I was following. One of them was Casey Neistat. He's like a big New York City vlogger, YouTuber I'm fam-
1: Very familiar
0: Yeah, and I was looking to somehow get involved with projects that he was doing, and he did this video with Chantal Martin, launching her YouTube channel, and so I looked into her more, and her artwork is amazing, she's super cool, and she said she was starting a YouTube channel, and I saw that she also had no video skills, so I reached out and slowly started working with her on little things over the course of six or eight months, and then eventually she wanted to take YouTube to the next level and do a bigger project with vlogging and take that more seriously, but she just never liked vlogging fundamentally. And so I pitched her on this docuseries and we worked on that for about three months. It was called Come What May. It was like a four-part kind of docuseries about her life and work. And it was through the process of telling the story of her life that I realized that I could tell stories about my own life too. And so it was out of that experience...
1: That's where the narrative filmmaker started budding inside of you. It sounded like.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then I had the idea for that for the short, and that was just an experiment that that we did, and then it went on from there.
1: Now, did you start looking at films in a more serious way? Did you start watching films at that point, like from the past, or were you then? Did you start going to the cinema or anything like that? Was there any sort of change? Yeah, as, as far as your influences.
0: For sure. I think the biggest change that came from that short was an interest in screenwriting and really struggling with that first script. I have no idea what a screenplay is, how to make one.
1: Did you read any existing scripts to try to get motivated or to see like what the structure is or that sort of thing or see what's good, like things that you liked or anything? I
0: probably should have, frankly, but <laughs> I was mostly just <laughs> watching movies differently trying to figure out structure through watching them and stuff like that and try to f- develop screenwriting craft that makes sense yeah
1: yeah so i feel like i didn't read scripts until i did here and there but i, I didn't do it in a more serious way until yeah. like after i was like already writing trying to write my own yeah, sort of stuff
0: now i do and i'm like i can't i don't know why i didn't start doing that sooner
1: yeah what people take for granted now is that they're available Oh, yeah. Yeah, like and yeah, you available. could just, like, search, do a PDF search of just most screenplays are out there. Oh, yeah. I, I was watching the show Better Call Saul, and oh, just yeah. I just think the writing is so strong. The show just ended. It was, uh, of course, the, the spinoff of Breaking Bad. Yeah. And I was one of these guys that, like, 10, 15 years ago, people would be like, oh, what shows do you watch? I'm like, no, I just, I'm strictly cinema. I just watch movies. But now it's really... A different time there's definitely series that are as strong as films and i don't i feel like i don't look at things that way anymore now it's still difficult as far as a time commitment i'm rel- more reluctant to get into tv shows just because that's such a commitment it's one thing watching a two-hour movie in one night and then it's another thing where okay i gotta watch every episode and every season of this thing that i'm into now yeah and so that was also a reluctance but that show was particularly strong and just, just especially other- the scripts yeah, yeah. And were you into it? Are you a fan?
0: Yeah, Breaking Bad is probably my favorite
1: show. Great show. Yeah, that yeah, show, like definitely I read the pilot. Yeah.
0: And the pilot's incredible. Should first, I read it. You should read it. Yeah, like the first two pages are just like, the way that Vince Gilligan, who I think he was the sole writer on the pilot, just writes, like the Breaking Bad scripts have a very unique style to them.
1: They do. Yeah. that He's a direct influence on my writing because he would do things and i've used this example before but i would actually say to my co-writer mark when we we're writing certain projects together mark's my cousin mark marini we wrote the trouble together and sometimes when we would be writing i'd be like let's go back and gilliganize the script yeah like i would use it almost as like a phrase because there's one line where he introduces the gus frame character mm. and i saw him on an interview Giancarlo esposito did outstanding job playing Gus Fring and he said that the way that he broke that character and like his key to understanding that character was a a line in the action description that introduces Mm. the character that says Gus is a man that hides in plain sight yeah and I just thought that was incredible how he could just take one single line how impactful that could be and so then it started influencing my own writing in terms of trying to do that trying to be really succinct my words
0: yeah especially the action lines like the He writes in such a way that you feel the movie so vividly just from reading the script with writing a language that's like more telling much more of a story than another screenplay, which is like hardly any action lines. Yeah. But it's just different styles. Like one is not necessarily better than the other.
1: I agree. Yeah. Like William Goldman who made The Princess Bride, made Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He was considered one of the greatest screenwriters of all time like he had a specific style yeah back then that sort of changed the game you know tarantino uh-huh. had his own specific style like you could read true romance or pulp fiction and be like very much his style and part of his style tarantino's is to entertain the reader of the script as well and i think i've seen him say that in interviews as well and i think that there's something there too because i think while a screenplay it's it i always say it's not the end all be all like we're not just producing screenplays, like, it's just, it's the blueprint of the film. I think, to some extent, it should still excite the yeah. reader of it. And it should be, also be the blueprint for the actor, in terms of exploring those characters. Yeah, and just communicating tone. Yeah. Now, some screenplays have, some, there's some screenplays that have surprised me. Paul Thomas Anderson, I love the movie The Master. And I went back to read the movie The Master and I was, I don't want to say I was underwhelmed. I was actually, mo- I want to say, I guess I'll phrase it this way because I love Paul Tom Sanderson's work and, but I will say it's a testament to him as a director, because if somebody were just to show me the screenplay of the master and I'd never seen the movie, I would not have seen his vision mm-hmm. of the film. So it was interesting to see that script. And then there was so much more in his head as a director, of like what he brought to the table. Yeah, it's, he might write, oh, this
0: character walks over to walks across the room and looks out the window, but then when you have Joaquin Phoenix do it, and it's holy shit, it communicates like an ocean of subtext. Yes. That isn't on the page or whatever.
1: Exactly, yeah, good uh, point. Yeah, and he's really a master, excuse the pun, I guess. <laughs> at, <laughs> oh, he's just such a great director in terms of bringing out best in actors that he works with mm-hmm. like that scene in that movie with Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman when they're drinking the hooch like you've seen that movie
0: so I, I started it like a few weeks ago and I was like really late at night yeah and I was like I can't do that's this. definitely happening on many right films
1: now. yeah there's certain movies you really have to be alert and yeah. just ready to watch them that's yeah. definitely one of them but I strongly recommend it I, and I don't know if you've seen Phantom Thread I have it's so good it's so good it seems like it's important for definitely some filmmakers to be a writer director. Mm. And that's something I want to talk about. It's that seems like it's important for you. To write my own movies? Yeah. I think so, yeah. At least at this point. And I guess tell us a little bit about your process as a filmmaker and like in writing your own scripts. Are you a big outliner? Do you just start plunging into writing?
0: I've done a few different things approached it a few different ways. I have just dove into a screenplay and just like totally gotten lost and floundered and it's a mess. But now I do outline a good amount before I start
1: writing. Yeah, I'm a big outliner. Yeah, I know there's just two schools of some people just plunge in. And there's really successful writers that do that. And then there's other really successful ones that are swear by outlining. Yeah. For me, the outlining is important. How much do you ever allow for improvisation when you're working with actors? Like, tell us like about your process a little bit with working with actors.
0: Yeah, for sure. On, I guess, Mercy and Puppet Man were different experiences. Like, on Mercy, there was a good amount of improvisation. There was a lot of, we had the script, and the script had gone through like 60 rounds of revisions. Like, it was hell trying to write that script.
1: Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of revisions for a short. Yeah, it was... Yeah.
0: And it was a challenging movie to get right on the page. At least for me at that point, a movie about a mercy killing suicide, like how do you get two characters to go on that journey where they're both at that point and you not only understand why they're doing what they're doing, but like maybe even agree with it too. That was the challenge of that screenplay is like how do you accomplish that and get the audience to go along with you? And the actors just brought so much to the table once we were on set are the two actors were Marlon Mason and Joe Lopez and Marlon she's been acting for literally 70 years and so she's done so much and she just brought so much experience that she'd come to me and be like okay this line feels can we cut this line or can we change this line and almost always the answer was yeah
1: yeah I guess she just wanted to make it roll off the tongue or something that felt that was more real or like to her yeah you know? so
0: that it felt natural coming out
1: of her mouth And she had a great
0: her barometer for does this line sound fake or does it sound natural was like super on point. Like she would know if what she was saying sounded like bullshit.
1: And I think that's good for you being the writer that you didn't have to go. It eliminates having to like go through a round of approval if there was like another screenwriter or exactly that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. And I had a co-writer on that screenplay, which was an interesting experience, a challenging one at times. Like how do you. When two writers approach a story different ways, like how the hell do you deal with that? But how do
1: you deal with sixty rounds of rewrites with a co-writer? What was that like?
0: It was challenging. And like at first, sh- there are scenes in that movie that she totally wrote on her own, and they're beautiful. Probably some of the best scenes in the movie. But there was like other things where we just like fundamentally disagreed on like kind of basic things, which, which was challenging. At the end of the day, it was like I was the only one. I was directing it, and she wasn't there. She was she was out in LA or New York. She just wasn't there. And I, it, you're on set, and you have to make a choice, and you have to live with it, for better or worse. So
1: I will say, I saw the film. It's a really beautiful film, and you did a tremendous job making thank, that film. Thank so you, I, appreciate I, it. I saw it before I worked with Andrew on Puppet Man, where I helped them produce it. And so that was my foray into the work of Andrew Fuchs. And I will say you did tackle it like for such a movie with a heavy topic. It was heartfelt. Yeah. yeah and yeah, I really know. cared about the characters, which is, is everything, right?
0: Yeah. That was essential. Like you had to buy into the characters. And you had to buy into the relationship and the marriage and believe that it was like a 40-year marriage. And you had to feel their love for each other throughout the entire movie. In the scene before the final scene, it's fundamentally it's a love story. That that's how I was approaching it. It's a tragic love story. Yeah. So.
1: That's how I see Better Call Saul. Have you been following the show? Have you I ha- It I just ended, seen it. so it's on the forefront of my mind and it, there's some really interesting things that happen, and I strongly recommend it. But yeah. I look at it like it's a love story in a way.
0: I got four seasons in. I need to watch season five and six. It's incredible. Six. It's some
1: of the best stuff I've ever seen on TV. Not just, and I'll be as bold as to say this. There's some things in there that not just the best stuff that I've seen on TV, the best stuff I've seen on screen, period. Wow. Yeah. I would say it's that strong. Bob Odenkirk is just so next level. He's so next level. Between And then between him and Vince Gilligan and then the other show creator, Peter Gould, and then the rest of the cast, it's, yeah, it's completely next level. Yeah. So back to Mercy. So you made this film, and what was the, how would you categorize the experience being different from your first short film? And I hadn't seen your first short film, by the way. Okay. But was there, did you feel like you were leveling up as a filmmaker?
0: Yeah, Hey Stranger was a very small movie. We shot it in one day in my apartment in Lower East Side. One kind of brutal 17-hour day, but the whole thing takes place in the apartment. It's a bottle movie in that sense. My co-writer on that was also the lead actress. We had another actor who was great. So the, the, the lift from like a directing perspective on getting the performances there, they pretty much had it. There wasn't that much that I needed to direct and keep track of, like character-wise, like tracking an arc over a period of time wasn't the biggest challenge on that movie. And then Come to Mercy, it was just a much, much bigger movie. It was 22 scenes, most of them in different locations, shot over four days in the middle of fucking nowhere, completely out of order. And so it required me to do script analysis and actually consider the way that I was preparing for the shoot and preparing to work with the actors in a way that completely did not with Hey Stranger. And that was the biggest revelation of that experience was you can write your own script, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you understand it on a deep enough level to be able to direct it. Actually doing the deep analysis of understanding the subtext of every line, going through and thinking about how should that line be delivered? What is a way that I can communicate the delivery of that line and what I'm what am I gonna do if I'm not getting it? So having a plan for how something should be delivered, and then backup plans if it isn't working that way, like thinking through how can I say this in a different way? How can I use a metaphor to communicate to to communicate this to the actor? And just thinking through all of those. Building a toolbox as a director that you can then draw on in the moment, because when you're in that moment and there's so much pressure and there's so much going on, it's hard to think. Yeah, it's really hard that's to think. so true. So building that bait that foundation through script analysis was something I didn't do on Hey Stranger, which now which I did on Puppet Man, and which I'll do on every project, just because I can't imagine not doing it. Because
1: yeah. now that's part of your sort of tool set of how you yeah make your work. For the better. Yeah. really, it's really also, interesting.
0: And it also gives you like a super clear compass for if you've already thought everything through, it gives you a compass for being like, okay, that delivery, that wasn't what I wanted. Or I thought I wanted it this way. And I've thought through the implications, the story implications of that delivery on the character arc. And the way that they did it accomplishes that goal but in a completely different way but it's having thought it through in the first place that gives you the confidence in the moment and that's honestly the script analysis is where 90 percent of my confidence on set comes from is having done that work
1: and is that something that you came up with on your own or did somebody guide you to that point like how did how was that sort of realization i had read a book by judith weston directing actors yeah great book great book great book
0: Honestly that book saved my life for yeah, sure. It's a game changing. Yeah. Book. It's so good.
1: And she's really against giving line reading as many actors are. So there's many directors that might give like a line reading, say it this way and that's not what an actor Yeah. Wants. They don't want to be micromanaged. Her whole thing
0: is not using result oriented language. If I want somebody to be If I want someone to be if I want a dad to be angry at his son, I wouldn't say, "Can you say that line but be angrier, because that's seeking a certain result from the line reading. The other way of saying that, using a verb, which is much more actable from an actor's perspective, is say, punish him, or yeah. I want you to belittle him. It's something that's actable that they can, that isn't seeking a certain result. Because if you approach it from a result-oriented perspective, you run the risk of, when the actor's giving the performance, they're going to be thinking, was that angry enough? Is that, did I achieve the result that the director's asking me for? And at that point, you're in your head and the performance probably
1: sucks. Versus so. giving them some business yeah. to work with, which actors, that's their craft. Yeah. And that sort of, yeah, it's a game-changing thing. And so that's really cool to see that was such an influence on you because, yeah, I found that book to be very inspirational myself, actually.
0: Yeah, and I think I sent you some of the prep work on Puppet before we shot. And I'll literally go through a script take out all the dialogue lines and I have a spreadsheet of what's a verb, what's a possible metaphor, what's the subtext. I'll literally have it and I'll have it in front of me.
1: I will say I was very impressed by that. <laughs> made a strong impression to me as far as your level of preparation because like I prepare scenes, but I've never made a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet. with the emotional beats. <laughs> yeah, That's usually the stuff that's in my head, but I was really impressed to see that nope. i make spreadsheets about everything else <laughs> that people joke around and they're like man you and spreadsheets but
0: <laughs> and you could throw it out it's just like the fact that you have it no most, it's, most of the time it's good you're not looking at it but no but that
1: thought but just going it's like a business plan somebody they say 97 percent of businesses that don't have a business plan fail but even if you just make it and just throw it in a drawer somewhere and never look at it again just the act of creating it shows that at some point you had the vision of how sort of things should be. And you, you gave it thorough thought, which is everything. Yeah. So that's really good. Yeah. Nice. And w- would you say that most of your experience with actors, do you love working with actors? I
0: do. Marlon and Joe, it's just they were so amazing to work with. It's such a special relationship and they're so fucking important. Like they, so are, important. they are the movie. And working with Joe and I, it, we're really good friends at this point. And it's funny because he's like in his 70s. And I'm 24, but it feels like we the way that we collaborate, we think very similarly, and we approach creative problems in a similar way. Like the one the way that we found the ending for Puppet Man wasn't originally in the script, the way that it currently is, but that was like, oh, I bought this puppet on eBay. Here it is. What if he picked up the puppet and started talking to himself through the puppet? What would the character say to himself through the puppet in that? Way? Yeah. And then Joe would just, we would just riff. And then eventually we land on something. like,
1: Oh shit. That's cool. I love that. Yeah. Joe is fantastic. He's such a good actor and he's got such a cinematic face. Oh yeah. For people that watch the movie, they'll instantly know what we're talking about here. And one thing I like Andrew is that, and I've mentioned this to our mutual friend that introduced us together. Shout out to Lena Lansky. But I like how it's, I find it interesting that for such a young guy, you're approaching subject matter and drawn to stories of older people. And I'm not saying that's the, that's the only thing that you're doing, but I it, you've done that more than once on Mercy and on Puppet Man. Yeah. And I like that for a couple of reasons. W- one is I feel like just we have a, almost a, like a problem in modern times and in this country that people just don't, they discard people that are older, and they even in their minds, especially a lot of younger people, they, they write them off, and, and it, that, that's sad to me. And so I like to see those sort of stories, and I just want to get your thoughts about that. Like, like how did that happen, and what, what do you think of that? Yeah, I guess it first happened, the first project was Mercy,
0: and that was originally based off of kind of a real thing that happened when my dad was buying a house, legally a seller has to disclose if there had been a death in the house. And it was disclosed to him that there had been an elderly couple, both of them were terminally ill, living in the home, and there was a mercy-killing suicide. Wow. Yeah. And there were one of them, I think, was 80s. The other one was early 90s. Like, they were old as hell. Yeah. And when I heard that story, I was like, oh, shit, That's wouldn't that be an incredible short film to try to tell that story? And we got actors because that's who the people were
1: that makes sense and it's interesting to to understand your motivation <laughs> I think that's cool how you were just imagining you, you heard the story and then just imagine the circumstances to create your film
0: yeah and it was like that sounds like a great film and I had been wanting to tackle subject matter like that I lost my mom when I was in 2015 when I was in high school so sorry Yeah to breast cancer. And so I wanted a story that I could explore some of that. My dad was we worked pretty closely on the script, frankly. And so it was got a really interesting process going through and diving deep into that experience to to draw on it to find material that felt real and resonant. And so that was all of that was the reason why that movie came to be. But yeah, I completely agree. In the number of people that have told me like, hey, yeah, like when the, even when reading the script, like, yeah, it's a beautiful story. But like, old people, that's not commercial, you're going to struggle with that. That's going to be a difficult movie. Nobody wants to watch a movie about old people. Let alone old people that are dying, man, not let alone two old people that are dying. Ugh, that's brutal. And people would say that that's not a movie that anybody wants to watch. But like the reality is, Old people are so neglected in so many ways, but in film too, like we don't, especially stories about death and terminal illness and end of life and death in America. We don't like talking about it.
1: That's true. It's such a part of life. And I think that's just a myth about there's so many, there's so many older people that go to the movies. They make such a big, even from like a marketing perspective, I've been in rooms where they're like, that's such a big sector of people that actually go to the cinema yeah. and actually are paying for films and things like that. So it's such a misinterpretation that they were watching content like everybody. Else. My grandfather <laughs> is in his nineties and watches YouTube. He probably navigates <laughs> it better than I do.
0: Yeah. So that was why that movie came to be. And then puppet man was like, Oh, Joe. Yeah. Joe is the puppet man. <laughs> yeah. You just there, had
1: such a great experience working with Joe and you like, you developed it with him in mind.
0: Yeah, and I told him that there was like no way that we could make that movie if he wasn't going to do it. So that's pretty cool. So now we have two movies with old people. So the next one is not.
1: So tell us a little <laughs> bit about, I guess, for people that are not familiar, tell us a little bit about what Puppet Man is. Not that you have to give the whole thing away. No, yeah, but sure.
0: Puppet Man is a story that I initially came across when I was walking on 6th Avenue Park Slope and I walked past. It was on a Saturday. And I walked past this marionette puppet theater, and one of the puppet people was outside, like, asking people if they want to go to the show. He was like, hey, do you want to come to our show? And I was like, is it free? And he goes, nothing's free, man. (laughs) And I just thought that was funny. And I walked away, but I got a peek inside just through the open front door. And I was like, what is this fucking place? This place looks weird. There's definitely a movie in there, in that space somewhere. And... So I started thinking about it, and I was like, okay, what about a movie about a disturbed marionette puppet operator? And I, I texted Joe that same day, and I think I showed you the text after we finished wrap, but I, I messaged him, like and I sent him a picture of the place, and I was like, hey, I think there's a simple and great short film about a disturbed marionette puppet operator in that theater, so just putting that out into the universe. And then the next Saturday... I went to one of the puppet shows, and it was about it was me and about thirty other toddlers watching this marionette show, Beauty and the Beast. And the show was great, and the puppets were amazing. And after the show, I went backstage and met the puppeteers, and that's where I met Ronnie and Preston, who are the two main puppeteers at Puppet Works. Over the next two three weeks, I wrote the script, came up with this idea, and then pre-pro was really fast.
1: It was so. I, when we wrapped. And you showed me that first text to Joe. Yeah. I was stunned of how fast that you had just the raw concept to then from finishing shooting.
0: But it's so much more satisfying to work that way. It is, actually. It's so much better. I'm so tired of shorts and Mercy was this way, and I, I don't want to do it again, where the script takes. Mercy got delayed for a number of reasons. We tried to do it, blah, 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 blah. But post took unreasonably long. I'm tired of shorts that take a filmmaker the amount of time that it should take to make a feature film you're right to make a fucking 15 minute movie get it done a short movie a short film you should be able to accomplish it pretty quickly and i think
1: the movie turns out better that way i think you're right i always think of them like clay these things are like like as far as the editing of a film it to me it's like clay it it should be like clay like the sooner after from shooting it it just complicates things the more you wait I'll say I'll put it that way. That's why I think of it like clay like it's just easier to edit something when it's like fresh versus I mean there's just artistic reasons but also just even logistical reasons like for it.
0: Yeah, I agree. and then you just have it done. It was like there was it, there was it was May 26 and 27 that I think we shot and it was the situation was if Matt my DP, he had a feature in Poland that he was scheduled to go do and he was going to be leaving a few days later for a month and a half. My actor had a feature that he had to go do and then I was going to go to California and go backpacking. So if we didn't shoot it on May 26th and 27th, it was going to have to wait two or three months until August. So like this month. And it was just like there's something about pushing a, a project that I think can it's also kinda, bad. Can yeah. doom it in I some agree. sense. I agree. Completely
1: agree. But and then sometimes you fall out of love with projects yeah it happens sometimes
0: and maybe that's a sign that the project wasn't good enough yeah. if forget about it
1: <laughs> may yeah maybe it is a sign it could be a sign but there's something about there's something just in about that moment where you're just thinking about it all the time and you want to do yeah, it like where something can get lost even if it was maybe like potentially a good idea at an yeah. earlier time yeah, yeah. there's I, some there's something about just getting after it right there and then so i, I really respect that you did that and i love it
0: so we had three weeks yeah we it was basically three weeks We had to prep everything. We had to design the puppet show, choreograph it, rehearse it.
1: Yeah, so I had no idea when I got involved, like, in producing this project that you had just had the concept just, like, weeks, (laughs) a couple weeks earlier. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it it turned out really well. And I'm sure it's going to do really great on the festival circuit. So look out for it.
0: We'll see what happens.
1: So is there anything in general that you want to talk about with your sort of philosophy about directing or filmmaking before we switch gears to like the next portion of the podcast?
0: I don't know. If you have anything else you want to talk about Puppet Man in terms of what your experience (laughs) is like.
1: Well, my experience, I was impressed with your level of obviously how committed you were to achieving your vision and how you never compromised. I never saw you compromise. Like I didn't feel like there was anything that compromised the quality of the film. You fought very hard to achieve a really, really high quality film. And I think it's always challenging circumstances doing indie stuff.
0: Yeah. Like, it's, I actually, one thing that would be fun to talk about is, you know, that the idea of compromise and like, when do you compromise? When do you
1: that is an important thing because that's something that even like I watched Ron Howard's masterclass and he did yeah this scene from his movie Frost Nixon. He's, like, oh, here's how we approached uh-huh. it. Here's how I would approach it. with two Here's how I would approach it if it was an indie film. Yeah. and We only had 20 minutes left to capture this scene. How would I cover it? So I would love to get your ideas about that. See, my personal ideas, and I've learned from directors like Ron Howard and other directors that sometimes – limitations actually foster creativity and that filmmaking is problem solving like yeah. filmmaking if you have to embrace that a big part of filmmaking is problem solving
0: yeah yeah there were sometimes like on puppet there was an interaction between the theater host and the couple there was going to be a back and forth exchange about turning off their phones and we were like half hour behind and to get that interaction would have we would have needed like the front three-quarter the reverse so it would have been two more shots and probably an hour and a half
1: of setup yeah setup
0: and we just didn't we didn't have it but because we had shot the master with a take where we just cut those lines from the script so Gary introduces a show but he doesn't have the interaction with a couple. It gave us the option to after that if we wanted to cut those two shots and we knew that we could just live in the master. Whereas if we hadn't done that and the only version of that scene was with the interaction, we would have been married to capturing those two shots or else the movie would be the beginning of the movie would be really weird. You would there would have been some like horrible editorial solution or something yeah but it was i feel like with independent filmmaking the whole goal is putting yourself in as few situations where where you're trapped there are so many in independent filmmaking there's so many traps if you only the cover scene cover the scene with that shot it better be good because there's no editorial solution for it or shooting in such a way that you know that you can have flexibility that there are options shooting in such a way that you're not limiting yourself in that way so there was and that was an example of shooting the master that way because I was on the fence of do we even need this Is it distracting to the movie so we captured it that way and at that point it was like okay me matt have a conversation about does the movie really need that interaction and the decision was no so we were able to save an hour and a half there and we had a heart out at the location that day
1: and that's so important that's and it's a testament by the way to your background as an editor how it's really fundamental into you directing projects. Because I think that's one of the most paramount things of having an editing background is that you could really piece the movie together in your head better.
0: Yeah, I don't know. People do it, like just go straight into directing, not having edited and just always hire an editor. And maybe that works for some people, especially if you're starting out somehow at a really high level and you have a really experienced team around you and a DP that can look like you beware of this caution. Don't do that or else you're going to screw yourself in the edit. For me, I mean, I started editing, edit, I've edited everything I've ever shot. And so the experience and I've edited other people's stuff too. So the experience of finding yourself in an editorial corner and a being able to Navigate and find a way out using editing or not being able to, like having all of those experiences and seeing the pitfalls, seeing the places where, okay, I know I can save myself if I do this that way. So I know that I don't need to belabor this angle and do it 15 different ways. Because I, at the end of the day, I really know. I'm probably going to be using this other shot for that moment anyway. Having all of that experience loaded into your mental RAM as you're shooting and being able to use that experience has been so important.
1: Well said. Is there any is there anything else about the experience about Puppet Man? It was a really interesting shoot, really cool experience. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to touch upon? And shout out to that Puppet Theater, Puppet Works in Brooklyn, because they were just awesome.
0: And Preston. Yeah, Preston uh, was puppeteer incredible. slash location manager yeah. slash yeah. collaborator.
1: Yeah, and really nice guy. So yeah.
0: his attitude is just perfect. It really he, is. The entire time. Did you ever see him, like,
1: pout? No, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> He's always smiling. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he had a good disposition. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that one to get released. And now we're going to get into talking like the second portion of the podcast is where I ask our guests to talk about a couple of movie scenes that they love. And I typically ask ahead of time and Andrew, the two scenes that you wanted to discuss are from the movies before midnight directed by Richard Linklater with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpley. And so I guess we'll talk about that one first. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I love that argument scene so much. I love that argument scene in the apartment and the ending, they're just so good. Like It's so good. And especially- we should give,
1: okay, I guess we should give context, a little bit of context to the film for people that have never watched it before. And spoiler alert, we will be talking about the ending. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's a very character-driven film. It's, not a f- even, it's a film, even if you verbally hear about what happens in the ending, it's still worth watching. I always compare these things to meals. I could describe a really great meal at a great restaurant. Nothing compares to the experience of going to the restaurant and eating that meal. So it's the same thing with the movie. Yeah. So Before Midnight is the third in a trilogy that Richard Linklater directed that started off, the first movie was filmed in the mid-90s, actually, with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Am I saying her name, right? Yeah, Julie Delpy. Yeah. The, Julie Delpy. She's a French-American actress, and she's really great in everything that she's in. But they were in their early 20s when the first movie came out, and it's about a couple, it's about, essentially two strangers that meet each other on the train and they have this, just this day of just going out and just talking, walking a lot of tracking lot of, shots. Yeah. A lot of steady cam where it's pretty cool. They're just, you're just following these characters in a day in their life where they're just falling in love with each other. Now keep in mind this is before way before Instagram, way before Facebook or social media. So there wasn't like an easy way to keep in touch like there is nowadays. I guess they could exchange numbers, but they didn't, and so that was the first movie. Then the second movie was them reconnecting. It came out in two thousand four, before Sunset was the second one, and then th- th- they're sort of reconnecting nine years later, where Ethan Hawke, he's he's married. And then she's in a relationship and she comes to one of his book signings because now he's like a successful author and he just authored a book. And then they meet again after all this time later, after that initial experience. Now this is the third movie where they're actually together now. They're married. They have two twin daughters and Ethan Hawke has a son that he's seeing off to the airport and they're at this Island in Greece on vacation. And so then the movie, sort of has the same sort of rhythm and beats except, now they're more or less bantering like a married couple that's been married for years yeah. and years. So I will say that, that argument scene, although the actual things that were that they're accusing each other of, I will say it hit very close to home for me <laughs> because I just felt like the nature of just how these characters communicate with each other mm-hmm. just reminded me a lot of me and my wife. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I, it's if you compare that argument scene to, say, the big fight scene in Marriage Story, the reason why I think it's interesting to look at them kind of and compare them is, like, they're two super big fight scenes, but, like, their approach to escalating or de-escalating action are just, like, completely different. Like, in Marriage Story, if you were to, like, map on a graph the intensity of it, it's just, like, a straight...
1: It's like a tea kettle that boils, Yeah, it just gets hotter and, it just, and hotter and hotter. Yeah.
0: And it eventually just fucking explodes. Yeah. Whereas before midnight, it's, it starts off with something small and then it escalates a little bit and then they start talking about something else, but then they start talking about the other thing again and it escalates and escalates. There's this push pull tension between it that I find is just so beautiful in the writing and just so artfully done that... They're just completely different approaches to a fight scene. Yeah,
1: absolutely, and very realistic. Too. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, amazing writing. There's so, so many amazing. I love the scene actually where Ethan Hawke is. He's sitting with those two, oth- those few other guys in the island, and he's pitching his new book idea. And he's talking yeah. about the different characters. He's like, one character sees the transient nature and everything. He could look at the lake and then sees the lay the day where it's like a wasteland and it's decrepit and and i just thought that i just i like how he just throws in all these unique interesting ideas that that he's had as a person and then he just weaves them into his story it
0: made me want to read the book that ethan's character would hypothetically write
1: same yeah absolutely (laughs) and i think it's interesting how i always think that one of the greatest powers of cinema is that it creates a sense of empathy for people that might be in completely different situations of you but you're like oh there's a relatability there and I feel an empathy for that sort of person that might be in a totally different walk of life than I am. Yeah. But there's something there. We could relate to these characters. Yeah. The
0: other thing with Before Midnight that makes that scene so impactful in the movie is there's so much... And honestly, I think he goes a little overboard. Yeah. Come closer. Yeah. I feel like he goes a little bit overboard with the walk and talk. In the third movie, I'm like, okay. Yeah. Sometimes like, it's a little bit... Moves a little slow, I um, felt like that at times, yeah, because he does it that way. when you get to this argument scene, all of a sudden, there's a bunch of angles, and he's cutting against all of them, and like the cutting pattern is completely different. Like, that scene feels so different than eighty percent of the movie, which is typically just like one single un uninterrupted shot, or like long tracking scenes versus the fight scene, which is you know, editorially a lot more complex,
1: yeah. A great film. Are you a big fan of his other work as well?
0: Yeah, I watched Boyhood recently. I loved Boyhood. I actually I got it. a yeah.
1: chance to see it with him in person, where he presented it at the Brooklyn at BAM in oh, Brooklyn. Sick. But yeah, so when the movie came out, I saw it at BAM. Richard Linklater was there. The main character was there. They were doing a Q and A uh-huh. afterward. It was really cool. Yeah, I mean, his
0: whole like multi decade project thing is so impressive
1: to me. I had that idea when I was in the fourth grade. I was like, it would be so crazy if, because I was so into movies, and I was like, it would be so crazy if you had a movie where like they're filming like a, like a kid, and then ten years later they're still filming the same movie, and the kid's actually grown up, and it's not like just a new actor; it's like the same. And then fucking rich Richard Linklater actually does something like that. I it's bet, it's so incredible.
0: I bet a lot of people have had that idea, yeah, and a lot of people probably tried to do it, but actually doing that and following through over. Getting a cast that's like down. Yeah. To do that over 15, 20 years every summer. Yeah. we are going to go shoot the movie. What happens if you just lose the... One of the characters, like the yeah. chances of that project falling apart completely is immense. It's like 99%. I
1: guess they just, they were just like, we'll just write around it. Yes. Like they'll okay. just, we'll see what happens if.
0: No shooting out of order on unless that.
1: Unless the main character died. If the boy himself that wasn't w- around anymore. just didn't want to do it anymore. He's like, you know what? Fuck this. I don't want to do it.
0: That would be a pickle. Yeah, that would.
1: You, so you're right, man. It's just that it's, yeah, there's such a, it's so difficult to pull off and he pulled it off. It's incredible. First, I first was introduced to him from watching Dazed and Confused as I guess a lot of people my age were. And then I went back and watched Slacker, which was incredible. And that was like a really pivotal, his first feature film, Slacker, was really, I think that was his first feature I'm film. That's one
0: with Matthew McConaughey. Dazed and
1: Confused was with Matthew McConaughey. Okay. And I think that was Matthew McConaughey's first role ever. I think so, yeah. And so when I, so Slacker was just like a movie about like a bunch of, sort of characters just walking and talking kind of thing. Uh But I know Kevin Smith watched that and he's, I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to do something like this. In
0: so many ways, it breaks so many screenwriting rules. True. Oh, we're going to have a couple just like walk for three minutes and just shoot the shit. And there's like a lot more going on in the subtext, but there's not like stakes, obvious like conflict. Yeah. necessarily and there's it's always bubbling below the surface but know. it's not the traditional like not. each
1: scene building up to this like major sort of conflict in the third act sort of thing
0: and, there's, and they teach you in screenwriting classes all the time raise the stakes stakes gotta be as high as possible and like I've heard Richard Linklater talk about stakes because people have obviously said this to him fucking forever Yeah. Like, what are the stakes what are we doing we're just talking and his response to that was like stakes like we're alive, like the stakes. Of a couple, the stakes of a simple conversation between two people—they're not physically life and death, but like emotionally.
1: There's so many couple. I was thinking about that too. It's a really good point that you bring up because if Ethan Hawke was equally as stubborn in that scene, then they would have just broken up because she's like, "I'm that's it. I'm done with you." But I don't. And she says, "I don't love you anymore." But he. Decided to choose to say, she doesn't mean that right now. I'm going to just charm her over, and let's see if we can smooth it out. and Let's remind each other of what... And it took both of them to get there, and it was an incredible scene from both actors. Yeah. But the stakes were pretty high, right? Because they could have easily just broken up right then and there.
0: Yeah. In the scenes in Before Sunrise where they're just, like, figuring each other out and falling in love. And the stakes aren't super
1: yeah absolutely it's
0: it's amazing to watch and beautiful One hundred 100 it makes you want to fall in love in the same way with someone
1: in the movie slacker yeah similar thing where it's like you have all these characters some of them are just talking some of them are talking about like crazy conspiracy theories but it's like yeah. interesting it's just like in like just intriguing and then i think there is this voyeuristic sort of aspect of cinema where we just we enjoy watching people behaving yeah on screen yeah. i mean growing up in new york city take that for granted like i enjoy sometimes hearing just a tidbit of a conversation when i'm near somebody on the street you know
0: the shit that you just hear (laughs) in new york city yeah is like unbelievable
1: if it's if a writer is ever in a state of writer's block all they literally have to do is just ride the subway and just not have headphones on
0: dude i was just sitting in washington square park yesterday and there was this guy who's had a little card folding card table set up and he had just like three giant jars of mushrooms like psilocybin mushrooms yeah. he was just like on the phone with someone and talking about oh yeah we really should buy some land in Mexico and grow some poppies there <laughs> and, and then was like talking about his dad and his dad was like hooking up with the same girl that he was and it was just fucking gnar- it was just it was i mean it was disgusting but it was like am i actually yeah, somebody just said that right there and I'm just like,
1: "Oh my god." You're like, "Am I living in the twilight zone?" Yeah. So let's talk the other scene in Marriage Story. We talked about it a little bit and that's also the scene that you love, Noah yeah. Bomback directed Marriage Story, yeah, with Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, really great film, tough film to watch if you're a married couple. I've heard that from many people. I can't watch that with my spouse. <laughs> yeah. but really written performed and i'm a fan of noah bomback i love the squid and the whale yeah and a lot of his films actually i went out to a restaurant once with my wife and i saw him and greta gerwig sitting dinner oh, yeah having dinner near us shit yeah that's so sick yeah
0: talk about a power couple yeah it was 2019 they were both nominated for oscars they that's found incredible. out the same morning just like lying in bed together like checking their phones
1: that's wild They're both nominated yeah were they both rooting for the other one to win? Or did they both oh. want to win? Is that competitive spirit so intense in both of know. them? or
0: I don't know, man. It would feel pretty shitty if only one of them had gotten nominated. No, yeah, that is, it
1: is a nice thing for both of them to get nominated for sure. All right, so let's talk Marriage Story.
0: Yeah, I just love that movie. It's a great I, movie. I, I love No Bound Back. I love his work. I definitely look up to him as a director. And that scene was a big inspiration for the big blow-up in Puppet Man. I was referencing it a bit.
1: Yeah, an homage. The
0: the form of it.
1: I wouldn't have seen that, actually. But it's cool to hear that now. Like, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that, I would say. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. I was, honestly, my, my intention was to try and combine both of those fight scenes a little bit. Is to draw on both of them. What does a fight scene look like if... It's got a hybrid between them because like the big argument in puppet man for the most part it generally tracks like up into the right on the graph but it's not a straight line yeah it there's moments where they reconnect a little bit but then she rebuffs it a moment. push and pull yeah so that push pull idea so it's kind of trying to draw on both of them but yeah i mean their performances in that scene are adam and scarlet
1: yeah really uh, strong
0: that i just i love noah's writing i love his dialogue it's just so naturalistic
1: and yeah, like the different concise. points of view too that he sort of explored.
0: Yeah. That movie and the reason why the fight is so interesting is that it's pretty even handed. Like both of them and I think this is the most interesting kind of conflict, is when both people there's not one person who's right and one person who's wrong. It's they're both right in different ways. And so the kind of like the conflict is Yeah, is is like that. So
1: I'm interested in that as well because life is all about perspectives, and film is—you could play around with those perspectives because it could be so obvious to one person. Hey, why did this person like completely f up over here? But if you were in that other person's shoes, you might see like a naturally justified way of like why they might have done and behaved in certain ways. And
0: there almost always is like everybody is the hero of their own story, like the story of our lives that we walk around inhabiting, like we're the
1: protagonist
0: and everything that we do. Okay. That makes sense. Why a person would do that? Because I did it and I have a lot of good reasons for that. Um, I, I, so.
1: I I agree completely. And, but I think where people falter is that we feel, we crave these stories where protagonists have major conflicts that they overcome, but yet people get so stressed out when it happens in their own lives and it's, natural that's human nature right but at some point we should just embrace it that's just part of life
0: what is conflict
1: conflict and then overcoming conflict just like what we crave to see characters in movies yeah what i mean is i think people get in their comfort zones and they a lot of times people just live in their comfort zones and it happens especially as people get older yeah you get into your routine you get into your comfort zone because when you're younger every everything is almost like stressful Right. You start a new school. You're like a new classroom. You have home, like like there's challenges like around every corner, like at every age. And that's why I think when you get older, every year it could just so starts to feel faster and faster because you get into it becomes easy to fall into routines.
0: Yeah, I feel like people for the most part. Are operating under like minimizing the discomfort that they feel in a given situation to the maximum degree. If there's a way to minimize your discomfort, be it like in a social situation or career-wise, like most people are pretty conflict-averse. And yet like a movie without it, that's fine. but we're talking about the before movies, which are like right. exceptions to this rule. But like for the most part, a movie without conflict is... Not that the before movies don't have conflict, but
1: they do, but it's internalized. It's right. just, it's not like an external conflict. Like one person needs to rob a bank, otherwise, like their son is going to die or something. Like, you know what I mean? It's much more subtle. Much more subtle, but, like a, more subtle, a but a movie, it's there. A
0: movie without it, period, is a terrible story. Yeah. It doesn't work. Right. And it's if you think about, do I want the story of my life to be like an interesting, great movie to me? Then you need conflict and you need discomfort. So you have to put yourself in uncomfortable positions
1: that that's basically my whole mentality especially (laughs) lately i've been trying to embrace that more and also been trying to actively just not live in my comfort zone because it's so easy to do that it's so easy to do that yeah and i know that you don't do that because as it was like making puppet man you put yourself through like Challenges like yeah. you it's a joy and you love to do it and you love to make films but it's you know like hell yeah. i'm sure you've had some mornings i know i have as a director i'm like why am i waking up at five o'clock like why am i doing this to myself <laughs> 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 It's like yeah. i could have just been sleeping in today but yeah. it's like the, then the joy of doing it is so worth any of those obstacles
0: yeah it makes life worthwhile
1: exactly. for me at least absolutely i agree yeah So, Andrew, I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast. Today's guest was Andrew Fuchs, hosted by Zef Kota, executive producer Jeff
0: Cutler, original music by Yuri Ryback.